for this day of Pentecost, and Lord, we praise you for the sending of your Holy Spirit, that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have given us your Holy Spirit to empower us, to feed us, to set us up to do the works that you have prepared for us to do. We pray, Lord, that we would indeed be in your will, led by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever tried to put together a puzzle without looking at the cover, without looking at the outside box? You don't get very far, do you? If you don't look at the big picture, you can't see what's going on in each of the little pictures found within the puzzle. And today, the lectionary gives us the big picture of what's going on, starting all the way back in Genesis. Did you catch it? Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 11. How many of you have heard this story before? How many of you have ever thought about the theological implications of this story before? hands. Good. Most of us know this story from Sunday school days, right? And we know about the Tower of Babel. We know about God coming and confusing the people and sending them off into the world because of their disobedience to him. We know that much. But there's a lot more going on here as we look at Genesis chapter 11 And what I want you to see today is that this is very attached to the day of Pentecost. It's very much attached to the events in Acts chapter 2. The big picture. When does the Tower of Babel occur in history? Well, at least 3,000 years ago, maybe 4,000 years ago. Scholars aren't really sure. But we know a couple things, right? It's identified in Genesis 11, 1 and 2, as being where? They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, verse 2 tells us, right? Where is that? What's that mean to us? Well, it's... Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, is the, the best guess for where this happens. And who is this happening to? Is it happening to the Hebrew people? No, it's actually a story about the Sumerian people, is what most people think. Who are the Sumerians? Does anybody know? Everybody ever heard of them? No, no, that's the Samaritans. Good, good guess. Good guess. The, the Samaritans come later. These, sorry, maybe I misspoke. These are the Sumerians. The Sumerians, right? The Sumerians is an ancient culture, one of the first civilizations to occur in the Middle East, okay? And the Sumerians were powerful, powerful people. Archaeology has discovered great works of the Sumerians. Uh, In 2125 BC, we get epics, epic poems, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, or 
the epic of um, in uh, a comparison in our Western culture would be like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Those kinds of poems are going on in Sumeria, right? And we see that this powerful people of their day are drawn to do a mighty action. Look with me at verse 5 of the Old Testament reading, five, or 3 through 5 rather. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower on its top, in the, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. From a human perspective, this seems like a great idea, doesn't it? From the human perspective, to build a city in the middle of a desert, a desert with arid culture, to build a city is to have a water supply. To build a city is to be able to grow things around the city, to have a great civilization. What's wrong with this picture, though? What's wrong with this picture? What's the motive for building this city and building this tower? Did you catch it? The tower with its top in the heavens, fame, and a centralization of power. What's probably going on here is the Sumerians are building what we know today as a ziggurat. Okay, a ziggurat is like a pyramid, but it's made out of bricks. And it, the bricks are stepped all the way up to the sky. Kind of like you see with the, uh, the Aztecs in Central America, that kind of look as opposed to the clean pyramid look. Okay? And the idea was that you would put the temple porch up top of the ziggurat, and men could climb the temple and commune with the gods. And the gods would come down and commune with them. But here's the problem. Can man ever climb up to the gods? No. And so it was an act of great arrogance to build a tower to be in the heavens. It was an act of self-proclamation that, that we human beings are so great that we're equal to the divine. We're equal to the deities. We can go up there and meet with them. Hmm. Doesn't sound very good to me. And yet, it's what every man and woman tries to do if we're honest in our heart of hearts. We literally try to walk with the divine. We think that we're our own master, that we're our own savior, that we're our own supreme commander. Look around in your culture. It's all over the place. Look in your heart. You might find it there too. Secondly, to have an eternal name. What is that? It's fame. It's fame. To ensure that your name lasts forever. We have nicer names for this now. Presidents secure their legacy. Right? People have fame through the world. 
I try to make monuments to my achievements so that other civilizations, other generations will see me. Third, to have the power of centralized rule. To have the power of centralized rule. Why, however? To be able to control other people. To be able to control other people. Is that not the story that we see repeated again and again in history? Is it not the story we see repeated, sadly, again and again in our own unregenerate souls? In one way or another, Psalm 2 tells us that God laughs and holds in derision such thoughts. Let me read a section of Psalm 2 to you. This is verse 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage, says the psalmist, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Go back to Genesis 11. What's the next part of this story in verse 5? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is, the, is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will, not, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. You get the derision here. If you see what the author of Genesis is doing, does God just kind of step on over to the tower that's being built into the heavens? No. What's the scripture say? He has to come down. He has to come down to take a look. Ah, what are those measly humans doing down there with their big monument that's in the heavens? Do you see? The tower to the heavens only gives a false impression to the builders of the tower. It gives them a false illusion that somehow they are their own God. Somehow they are their own masters. Why does God go down and disperse them? Why does he do this thing that seems so terrible? Just because he's ticked off and doesn't like their challenge of his power? Is that why he does it? No. No. Why does he do it? with a reason, so, there's so much more of a reason. And that is that, you see, these people's arrogance blocks their salvation. Their arrogance blocks 
their salvation. Why? Because they think they can go all the way up to God and in thinking that, they're never going to accept a God who comes down to them in the person of Jesus Christ some 3,000 years later. Do you see? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 talks about this God. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. But first, he condescends to our level. He comes down to us. So God breaks up the insolent, arrogant peoples with good reason. It's for their own benefit so that they can see him when he actually does come, even thousands of years beforehand. Their desire to centralize their power and control to play a deity would have blocked their sight from God. Pastor and theologian R. Kent Hughes writes it this way in his commentary. He says, God was troubled by what would happen to humanity if the human family were left unchecked They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in their delusion, they would never turn to God. But by contrast, what do we see? What do we see in Acts chapter 2? By contrast, what's going on here? in the New Testament after Jesus' ascension with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, particularly verses 17 and 18. And in the last day it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show the wonders in heaven above the signs of the earth below. Let's stop there for a moment. These humble men, by contrast, the apostles, their names are famous throughout the world. Because, why? They tried to build great monuments to themselves. They tried to attain immortality. No, quite the opposite. They stood humble. They stood humble, waiting for the Holy Spirit huddled in a room. They stood there waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And in God's time and in Jesus' name, they are given an immortality that surpasses all earthly rulers. Not that that's the end that they want, but it's a byproduct because of their obedience and because of their submission. And in God's time and in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the babel of nations is actually cleared up or undone in the Pentecost reading. Look at verses 6 through 11. And, this sound, and at this sound the multitude came together. Notice that. 
And they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. You see, it's the work of God demonstrating that when people seek God and allow the Holy Spirit to act rather than seeking to be God, God removes confusion for the sake of his kingdom. God unites people for the sake of his kingdom. Even culture and language itself is removed as an impediment for the sake of God's kingdom. A kingdom that knows no division in these things. St. Paul goes on later to say, in Christ there is no Greek or Jew. And he continues, right? Not that those things disappear, but that salvation, that the good news of Jesus Christ pervades them all and unites a people in them all. In this week's daily office reading for Friday, we read in the lectionary from Acts chapter 10, where a sheet comes down full of animals to eat to St. Peter. And God tells him, or Peter tells God, I can't eat these things, for they're unholy. And God says back to Peter, my paraphrase, do not call unholy what I have called holy. Do not call common what I have called holy. You see, God takes St. Peter and shows him that the good news of Jesus is not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile, for all people. Later on in that passage, what does Peter do? He goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He prays with him. The Holy Spirit is poured upon them, and they're all baptized. And people marvel at that, because no longer is the presence of God restricted to the Jew. When we're in the will of God, working for the sake of God's kingdom, for the furtherance of salvation, the Holy Spirit acts. That's his promise. It's Jesus' promise, too. Finally, look with me at the gospel passage, John chapter 14. What does Jesus say? He says in verse 16 of chapter 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And, I have underlined this, will be in you. Will be in in you. When Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, he uses a Greek word, parakletos, which doesn't mean just like your assistant, your helper, but it means your advocate, 
your guide, the one to stand next to you as you do something. And what Jesus is saying here to his apostles is he won't just be near you and with you, he will be in you. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean? That a person of the Holy Trinity is in you if you've been baptized and are part of Christ. Think about that. What's that mean? Take it back to Babel. Are you achieving deity on your own? No. But the deity, the third person of the Holy Trinity, is in you. Is in you as a gift from God. That's no small thing, friends. That's not just having somebody that you can visit once in a while and get advice from. That a person of the Trinity is in you as your advocate and guide, equipping you and me to follow Jesus. So as we look at Pentecost today, as we look at this feast day when we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Number one... He saves us. Don't miss that. So many people miss that for some reason. I mean, look, the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit saves us. How does he save us? He's our connection to God. The Holy Spirit, God in us. Jesus is incarnate up at the right hand of the Father. You know, we say shorthand, we'll say, I have Jesus in my heart. But truthfully, you don't, in one sense. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And of course, because of the mystery of the Trinity, you also have Jesus in your heart. Yes, you can follow the logic there, right? But the Holy Spirit saves us. He works through the waters of baptism to cleanse, and then he works ongoing to regenerate us, to bring us back to life. Second of all, the Holy Spirit feeds us. It's through him that Jesus is present with us. How? Well, specifically, we're promised in the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're fed at the table of our Lord. Pay attention to the Eucharistic prayer today. Pay attention to where the Holy Spirit's name is used to give us the presence of God. Without the Holy Spirit, we'd just be having a nice, you know, late morning snack up there. And honestly, it's not a very good snack. I mean, I know some of you like the wafers, but my wife doesn't. Truth be told, I really don't either. I'm not going there for the wafer, right? There's better cookies. There's better crackers. But I'm going there to receive the very presence of Jesus Christ, my Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, the Holy Spirit guides and protects the church. It's through the Holy Spirit and the, that the scriptures are written by the apostles, something that Jesus actually foretells in John. It's through the Holy Spirit that the acting and is acting through the apostles and then the bishops, their successors, that the creeds and the liturgy of the church are composed and passed down from generation to generation bringing life. It's the Holy Spirit who's called upon during ordinations. 
when people are set aside to be deacons or priests to help lead God's people. It's done, all done, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is asked upon each one of you at Holy Confirmation to release you, to empower you so that you can be ministers in the church to serve God, to show forth his glory. How does it practically work in your life? Well, let me just give you an example. Sometimes it's just a little nudge, right? You know, Gmail's got this new weird thing where like if you don't answer an email within three days, it, it gives you this little reminder and it's, a, it's, it's called a nudge, I think. That's what brought it to mind. And it's like, did you really mean to not reply to this? And boy, it saved my butt a few times. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's like that in this way. That when you're out living your life, when you're doing the things that you've been called to do, whether it's in your work or on the field in play or whatever, right? The Holy Spirit will often just nudge you. Have you ever experienced that? Where he says, remember, you're one of mine. Remember, you need to do X or Y or Z. Maybe, it, maybe he says, hey, you need to talk to this person. Or, hey, this person over here is in need. Can you be my hands and feet? The Holy Spirit works in those nudges if we hear him. If we hear him. And if we say yes. So do you see, the Holy Spirit not just saves you, but empowers you for ministry. Go talk to that person. Pray with that person. Open your Bible if he's nudging you to do that. How's he calling you to work in his kingdom every day? Because he is. He is. The Tower of Babel occurred around 6,000 years ago for us. But it can still help us discern the Holy Spirit's voice. We must ask the Holy Spirit to rid us of our own God delusions, first of all. The falsity that we think that I know what's best. No, he knows what's best. And of course, since the Holy Spirit's in here, you can say he knows what's best. And we must not think of name, fame, or legacy, but rather about giving him glory, about giving him his due. We must see that he holds the power of all nations, of all cultures in his hands. They all exist at his pleasure. And we pray that one day they all may embrace his right rule. But we're not alone in that transformation. And we're not alone in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit, the advocate and guide in closing, I want to leave you with the words of Lancelot Andrews, who preached this on one Whit Sunday, another word for Pentecost, back in 1606. He said, Christ is the word, and all of him but words spoken or words written. There is no seal put to this day 
The Holy Spirit is the seal or signature. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' seal and signature. It's the seal of salvation. It's the signature of the church. Let us pray that we may have a renewed pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Please join me. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that, that you continually search after us and pour out your Holy Spirit upon us when we ask for him. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to hear him. And Lord, I ask that you would renew our hearts and our spirits this day to your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.